We pray, Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us the time to gather today for worship. Thank you for giving us your word uh, to meditate upon. Please send your Holy Spirit to each one of us this morning to strengthen our faith in you. And please continue to make our worship this morning productive for all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to the third sermon in our sermon series called It's About Time. And I'm going to review, because not everybody's been here for the first two. In week one, we heard from a guy named Moses, if you've heard of Moses, and we reviewed the shortness of life in this earthly world. And we prayed with Moses. We said, Lord, teach us to number our days correctly so that we can gain hearts of wisdom. Then, last week, we heard from somebody named Paul. Maybe you've heard of him. And uh, we discussed some of the foolish ways that we use our limited time here on earth. If we don't have very much time, you'd think we would use it wisely, and yet we use it very foolishly over and over again. So last week, one of our verses was, we got to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil, because time is running out. So thus far, we have talked about bad ways to use our time. Today, and from here on out, we're going to begin talking about good ways to use our time. And one good way for Christians to use our time is using our time for worship. So, once upon a time, there was a pastor, and he was teaching a class to, like, his teen group. And the topic was worship. So he had everybody take out their sheet of paper, and on the top of the paper, he told them to write, write one thing that you think of when I say worship. So they all wrote one thing. And the pastor walked around and collected the sheets, and the first sheet, what the kid had written on the top, was simply one word, boring. Worship is boring. Do you agree? It's a loaded question while you're in worship. Um, is worship boring? Well, I think it depends on how you're defining worship. Because if worship consists of having your parents drag you out of bed when you're really tired, and then take you to a place where everybody is old enough to be probably your grandparents, and then sit in a rock-hard pew for two hours straight and listen to this really boring speaker drone on and on and on and on, and then have to sing along with some kind of awkward music that you don't really like. And if you're not singing loud enough, your mom is elbowing you in the ribs. I don't know. That sounds kind of boring to me. But that whole scenario that I've set before you, that's not what the Bible is describing when it uses the word worship. As we dig into how God talks about worship, it actually becomes surprising how unboring God's definition of worship actually is. So let's start at the beginning, and we'll ask, what does the word worship even mean? I don't know how many uh, you know, language fanatics are out there among you, but... I am told that there's an Anglo-Saxon word, worth scribe, or however you say it. And what it means is to ascribe worth to something, to ascribe value to something. And that's where our English word worship comes from. It directly comes from that concept, ascribing value to something that's important to you. And if you think about it, this concept of ascribing value to things or people, this is something we do all the time. We ascribe value with our words. We say, you've got to try that new restaurant. It is, it is phenomenal. We say, kids, come on out here. You've got to see this sunset out on the porch here. It is beautiful outside. We say, honey, I love you. You're the best thing that's ever happened to me. 
we're using our words to ascribe worth to things and people that are valuable to us. But we don't just use our words to ascribe worth, we also use our actions to ascribe worth. So we go to our favorite restaurant over and over and over. Or we take a picture of that beautiful sunset and we post it on Instagram. Or we show our honey that she really is the most valuable thing to us by making the bed and taking out the trash and buying an anniversary card and taking her on a special date, right? But we ascribe worth to people and things with what we say and with what we do. And we're constantly doing this. We actually can't not do this. I think you could argue that every action we ever do in our whole life is ascribing worth or value to something. Everything from mowing the lawn to eating breakfast to hitting your snooze button on the alarm clock demonstrates a priority. It ascribes worth to someone. We could spend a lot more time on this. We, we don't have time for it today, but I think it would be interesting to say who are most of our actions ascribing worth to? I think if we examined it, we might find the majority of our actions ascribe worth to ourselves. But we'll get to that problem. For now, we're saying ascribing worth is just an essential function of being a human being. And so let's go back to the beginning then and let's talk about the first two human beings. There was a day when the first man and the first woman stood in the perfect garden and they ascribed worth to the one who had made them in his image. The one who had made this perfect paradise for them to live in. The one who, the only one who could satisfy their deepest needs. Needs for identity and meaning and, and purpose that would last forever. Uh, maybe you've heard this quote from St. Augustine. He said, Lord, you have made us for yourself and the human heart is restless until it rests in you. But Adam and Eve were not restless, right? They were perfectly resting in God. Their hearts were dialed into God. They were ascribing worth to God. They were worshiping him. And they were doing it in a very unique way. In the middle of that garden, there was a tree. It was a special tree. It was a tree that God had said, it's the only tree out of all the trees. This is one that you're not allowed to eat from. This, this was the first real, clear, specific command to not do something that God had ever given. And thus, this was the first opportunity for worship. You think about it. Every time Adam and Eve walked past that tree and did not eat from it, with their actions, they were demonstrating to God how valuable he was to them. With their action, or their, their lack of action, their lack of eating, they were saying, God, we love you. We trust you. We don't need that tree. Because God, you are our number one priority. They worshipped God every time they walked by that tree and picked a different one. But you know what happened next. A fallen angel named Satan slithered into that garden in the form of a serpent. And what did he tempt Adam and Eve to do specifically? He tempted them to ascribe worth to themselves instead of God by eating from the tree. As Adam and Eve munched on that fruit, for the first time ever in their history, they were demonstrating that they, not God, were the number one priority. That they, not God, got to make their own rules. For the first time ever, human beings, not God, were the object of their own worship. And that is really a pretty good definition of sin. If you think about it, sin is simply self-worship. 
And it's been a problem for human beings ever since the fall. I mean, we don't know what that perfect world could have been like, but we know what our world is like. That now our hearts are restless, right? Now we spend our whole lives taking that God-shaped hole in our, life, in our heart, that God-shaped hole, and just trying to cram it full of every selfish thing that we possibly can. And we're never full. We're never satisfied. We don't have identity and meaning and purpose. Not that's going to last forever. Because this isn't how things are supposed to work. Human beings were created to worship God, not ourself. But thankfully, we have a God who refuses to leave us alone in our sinful self-worship. And he could have, right? God could have left Adam and Eve alone. He could have ditched them right there in that garden with guilt written all over their faces and juice from their forbidden fruit trickling down their chin. And he could have said, all right, you want to be your own God? You guys want to worship yourself? Well, go ahead. Let's see how it works out for you. But God didn't do that. Instead, God made a remarkable promise. A promise that one day he would send a savior to pay the price for human sin and to reconnect human beings with him once again. And so, as you're reading your Bible, Genesis 3 is this tragic chapter of the fall into sin, but that chapter ends on a hopeful note. Adam and Eve may have had to leave the Garden of Eden, but they knew that their God had not left them. And so in the very next chapter, we see Adam and Eve continuing to ascribe worth to God. And one of the main ways they did that, apparently, was by building an altar and offering to God the first fruits of their crops and the firstborn of their flocks and herds. And apparently this was a culturally appropriate way to say to God, we love you, we trust you, despite our sin and our flaws and our failures that are now happening every day because now we're sinful you, God, are still our number one priority. So this was the culturally appropriate thing. This is what they taught their kids to do in Genesis chapter 4. And there even was a term for this kind of worship. It was called calling on the name of the Lord. People called on the name of the Lord. And they did this from generation to generation. You continue to read through the book of Genesis, you get to chapter 12, and you've got a guy named Abraham, who is now like the main character of the narrative, and he goes to the promised land where God has sent him, and one of the first things he does is he builds an altar in order to call on the name of the Lord, to worship. Then, Abraham's family grew into a great nation, the nation of Israel. You fast forward a little bit, now the you know, million-plus person nation of Israel is wandering through the wilderness on their way back to the Promised Land. They stop at Mount Sinai, and under the leadership of Moses, God does something. Now we're in the book of Exodus. God does something with the topic of worship that has never quite been done before. He now gives them a specific detailed system for how they are to worship him. There was a tabernacle, there were holy days, there were all these different details, but the whole thing revolved around one concept. It was the concept of substitutionary atonement. And that means it wasn't about just offering God sacrifices so that God would be pleased, but the idea here was that God's people were to take their sin and their guilt and symbolically place it upon an animal, and then that animal would die and symbolically take the punishment in their place. 
God had set up this system of worship for them. And so do you see now what has happened with the idea of worship? For the first time in history, it's not just people ascribing worth to God. Now God is doing something on his end. And what God is doing is he's teaching his people. Through all these sacrifices, he's teaching them that one day his promises are going to be fulfilled. One day salvation is going to be provided for sin. But it's not going to come from the sword-wielding, conquering hero they might be expecting. Salvation is going to come from who? The Lamb of God, who humbly bows his head and dies as a sacrifice to take away the sins of the world. You see, so now worship is serving a double purpose. People are ascribing worth to God, but God is also teaching them, encouraging them. And he's not just doing it through the picture of the sacrifices, he's also doing it through his word, which is written down and copied and passed down from generation to generation. And just like today, reading God's word and meditating on it was a part of God's people's Old Testament worship. From there, we can just fast forward straight to the New Testament times and to the time of Jesus, who began his ministry by visiting Jewish synagogues for worship. There was a time in every service where a rabbi would come up to the front and he would unroll a scroll and he would read a section from God's word and then he would explain and expound on it very, very much like a sermon today. And what Jesus did at the beginning of his ministry and then continually until the synagogues were too full and he had to do it outside, what Jesus would do is he would come be the preaching rabbi. He would come up front, he would read from God's word, roll the scroll back up, and then he would explain that all of God's words were about him. That he was the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. That he was the big sacrifice who was going to render all other sacrifices obsolete. And Jesus had his doubters, of course, but the doubters were silenced when after dying on the cross, Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, proving that he was the Savior our world so desperately needed after 4,000-some years of sinful self-worship. Well, then Jesus ascended into heaven. And you know what happened next. His followers traveled across the world, spreading the good news of the gospel, telling people what Jesus had done. And during this time, the word worship, the concept of worship, changed one more time. And now worship became culturally flexible. So in different cultures, in different countries, in different nations, in different cities, in different languages, groups of Christians found ways to ascribe worth to God that were culturally appropriate for them. And God, on his end, continued to do his part of worship, where he taught and encouraged his people through his word, which now included the New Testament scriptures, and also through the sacraments baptism and communion, which Jesus had left behind and commanded for the Christian churches to do. And now we can fast forward all the way to today, 2,000 years later, and as we're talking about it, I think we see this is very much the same way that we worship God today, give or take a few cultural tweaks. So, by this point, maybe you're wondering why I've taken you on this 6,000-year-long journey through the entire history of worship but really, it's simple. As we gather for worship today, we can understand the same two things happen that have been happening for thousands of years. First, when we gather for worship, we are ascribing worth to God, calling on the name of the Lord, 
proclaiming the great things God has done. And if you're going to talk about the great things God has done, you can't, talk about, you can't not talk about when he sent his own son to die on the cross for our sins. Right? So the gospel message of forgiveness in Jesus is the heart of the proclamation that we have in worship. That's why we have words of sin and grace at the beginning of every service to review what Jesus has done for us. But in worship, God is also doing something. He is teaching us through his word. He is connecting with us through his sacraments. He is strengthening us and equipping us for everything Satan might throw at us during the week that is to come. Now, when you describe worship that way, we're praising the God who saved us from eternal death, and we're getting equipped to fight off Satan the whole week long. The things that are happening in worship are actually anything but boring. But the fact remains, sometimes we are still not thrilled to come to church on Sunday, are we? And there are various practical reasons why. Maybe we're tired because we stayed up late with our friends last night, or we stayed up late with our kids last night, not by choice, but out of necessity. Or maybe we're distracted during worship on Sunday, because we have a ton of things we have to do just this afternoon, and we have a brunch, and we're going to go to three different places, and then this week, like, school is going to start, and all these things are racing through our minds, and it's hard to just sit and think about spiritual things, and we're so distracted. Or maybe, maybe we just physically can't sit still. And I remember this when I was a kid. I had three brothers, and we'd be lined up in the pew. And if you're on the pew behind us and your hand was resting on our pew, you would just feel it shaking because all of our little legs, especially my two brothers, just physically could never sit still. They're just always moving. It is so hard as an active little boy to sit in a chair for an hour in worship. So at any rate, there are times for all of us when it is hard to concentrate on spiritual things because we're just so distracted by physical things. So what does God do about it? Well, he has made worship into a thing that we physically participate in, hasn't he? It was kind of cool. I didn't plan this, but I found it, that in our reading from last week, we had this direct encouragement from the Apostle Paul to sing. He said, be filled with the Spirit, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we don't just sit and listen to someone talk for hours at a time, but we participate in the service. There's spoken parts, there's singing parts. And then we have physical things like the sacraments. Baptism where you can watch, or if it's you, where you can feel. Water being poured over you and God making a physical connection to you. And we have things like communion, where we not only believe this abstract message of the gospel, but God makes it so physical that we put it right into our mouth. Paul writes, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. A physical connection to God, a physical connection with each other. God knows that it can be hard to focus on all this abstract spiritual stuff when we're so distracted by physical things, and so God has turned our worship into a thing that we physically do. Think about it. You could lie in your bed on Sunday morning and think deep thoughts about God. And you would still be a Christian. 
But this morning you didn't. What did you do instead? Well, you get up, you take a shower, you get dressed, you eat breakfast, you jump in the car and come to church, you get a cup of coffee, you sit your physical body in a chair, you use your lungs and your mouth to say some responses and sing some different songs, then it's the greeting time, so you stand up and you hug somebody that you haven't seen in a while. Pretty soon it's time for communion. And you walk with your physical body up to the front of church and you line up, not all at once in one giant group, but in appropriate tables as we've been practicing. And you take Jesus' physical body and blood somehow miraculously in this bread and wine and you put it into your mouth. Forgiveness that you can taste. God interacts with you physically. And you join out loud in prayer and you receive God's blessing and you sing out loud the closing song. And after church, there's some more smiles and hugs. Or maybe there's tears if you're talking to somebody and encouraging somebody who's been having a really, really hard week. And then you take your physical body and put it in your physical car and then you drive back home and you sit down for lunch. But what's the result? You're refreshed. You're encouraged because God has taken the faith stuff out of the abstract spiritual realm that you could have been laying in your bed thinking about it in your brain. And God has made worship into a physical, he's made your faith into a physical thing that you actively, physically do. So now what? At the beginning of the sermon, we said that worship is the essential function of every human being. We cannot live without ascribing worth and value to someone or something. But now that we've come home from church, being physically even refreshed with all of this, recharged and ready and encouraged by each other as well as by God's word, now we are ready to look at our whole life and use our whole life to ascribe worth to God. And that is what Paul is encouraging us to do in Romans 12, verse 1. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. As a Christian, you aren't worshiping God just for one hour on Sunday mornings. You're worshiping God all the time. When you get in your car and drive to work to fulfill your vocation and take care of your family, it's an act of worship. When you go into your office building and you try to be nice to everybody and show love to everybody, especially people who maybe have a different worldview than you do, this is an act of worship. When you work hard at your vocation, whether that is organizing spreadsheets or changing diapers or studying for a math test, this is an act of worship. When you go to the gym, you take care of the body that God has given you, this is an act of worship. When you go back to your home and you spend time with the family members that God has given to you, this is an act of worship. But you get the point. Paul says to the Corinthians, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. No matter where you go, no matter what you're doing, as a baptized child of God, you are ascribing worth to him with your very existence. Right? Flawed and sinful, though you still are this side of heaven, you are God's child shining God's light into this world. And that means the very breath in your lungs is an act of worship. And so as it turns out, maybe we've been talking about worship all wrong and thinking about worship all wrong. Worship is not this one hour of the week 
where we check the God box and then we go back to the rest of our life. Worship is the rest of our life. The one hour on Sunday morning is the time where we have to be refreshed and refueled and refocused with God and with each other. Don't you remember how Jesus talked about this? He said, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. And whoever remains in me is going to bear much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. If we're separate from Jesus, we lose fuel for our worship. But this is what the hour on Sunday morning is for, to be connected to God, to be connected with each other, to find strength and motivation for the whole week of worship that lies ahead of us. So I pray that God would continue to bless our hour of worship in here so we can be equipped and recharged and ready for our entire life of worship out there. God grant that to each one of us for Jesus' sake. Amen. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.